fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. The constitutional point of view was critical for Jefferson's support of the Bill of Rights. Welcome back to the Hayden Collins radio program, The Intelligence Syndicate. It's Saturday, and it's January, so <laughs> it's cold outside. I had so much fun with that over the holidays. In fact, uh, if you type in, it's cold outside on YouTube, you get to see a really good lip sync video that was done uh, using uh, child actors and dancers from the 20s. And it's actually very, very cute. It's very, very, and they change the words to milkshakes and things like that. It's really nice. It was a good holiday season. Uh, we did help with the toy drive, knock that out, did our New Year's thing, and here we are now. Uh, beginning of this year, we have a format change. So understand there's a format change with the show. And we we've bounced around a little bit. So we've got... Uh, some networks that we're on. We're actually just now starting with uh, Coffee Party Network, or I don't even know. I got to get the official title there. So we're actually out and about a little bit further. Uh, okay, so let me kick this one off. I'm not going to talk about government shutdowns, not going to talk about anything else on that level. But I want to talk to you about negotiations. And I want to talk to you about being predictable and being unpredictable. Now, I got to take you back in history because I, I love doing this. I, I love taking everybody back in history to show that this has happened before. And then not only has it happened before, uh, it actually worked. So we're going to play some game here. So, so let me play the game. Wow, back to 1937, 1938. 1936 was kind of the big shift in Europe. Okay? And and there were still a lot of Germans inside the United States. We, we, we had, uh, what, embassies, consulates, all kinds of stuff going on. And all kinds of things across the board. I mean... Understand at that time we were still negotiating with the Japanese over steel and things like that, but there was there was solid German heritage. There was solid German participation, not only in government, but it was everywhere. There were German students in our universities. We had German officers studying with American officers, okay? In, in fact, <laughs> this one everybody should look up. And, and you know, this is actually good reading, too, if, if anybody wants to indulge in this book. It's good reading. It's called Battle Leadership by Captain Adolf von Schlegel, and it's S-E-H-E-L-L. -L. It's only 100 pages, but it's a great book. So, this is what you do 
when you're part of the German government back in the late 30s. You study the ways of your potential enemies. So you would have German officers get their hands on all the U.S. military manuals, Navy manuals, so on and so forth, where it broke down what you were supposed to do, how you were supposed to do it, step by step by step by step, and they would study that. And they would study it, and they would study it, and they would study it until they knew the American manuals better than we did. And, and the purpose behind that was that the French army was, well, they're meticulous, and they followed their own manuals. Polish army did the same thing. Everybody kind of did the same thing. If you were in the army, there were strict rules. There were strict guidelines. You had to do exactly the way this is and yada, yada, yada. Or you got court-martialed or shot or whatever the case may be. So the German army was the same way, of course. I mean, they, they had predictable items as well. So let's go forward a little bit. 1943, in the middle of the war, and, and Fortress Europe has not been penetrated yet. Of course, we're getting ready to do D-Day, June 6, 1944. So, American manuals are everywhere. Germans are studying them inside and out. They have copies of them everywhere. They know that the American army is coming. And they want to predict what's going to happen. And they want to... And understand, in an argument, in a discussion, if you know what the person is going to do next, you win. If you know what the person is going to do three steps down the road, you win. It's like playing chess. And if you know what the other guy is going to do, you can plan around his moves. He can't get away from planning around his moves, but you can certainly plan around his moves and beat him at his own game. So, here let's enter into... D-Day, June 6, 1944. And, and consequently, the battles that happened after that. Now, there was a big thing about the Ghost Army, and I highly recommend everybody look up the Ghost Army. That's, uh, it's declassified now, but boy, you talk about Department of Dirty Tricks. But also look up Patton's Cardboard Army, because Patton had the Germans convinced that he was going to be the guy that led the attack on Europe and they built an entire army of cardboard around him with fake radio messages and and fake you know messages going everywhere and fake type things this that and the other and they made sure they leaked it in front of known German agents in Europe so they had all of the Germans convinced that they were going to attack in Calais and Patton was going to be the guy to do it so the Germans said aha we know what the Americans are going to do we know that Patton's leading it. We know that where they're going to go. So guess what? We're going to take our biggest, strongest armies, and we're going to set a trap for them in Calais. So as soon as the Americans land, we're going to kick butt and take names. Because the Germans read the American manuals. They knew exactly what was going to happen and when it was going to happen. Oh, now, we're also a victim of our own manuals, too. Okay, for example... One of the biggest mistakes at D-Day was a group of our armies, and when I say armies, understand when you have armies attacking, they're an army group, so this is actually a title. Uh, in fact, the group that was led by Theodore Roosevelt's grandson 
when they landed on the beach, they landed at the wrong beach. There were no Germans there. So they just got their act together and started driving inland, trying to find Germans and attack them. Well, when you look back on history and you say, holy cats, you know, we dropped all these guys off on the beach right in front of Germans and a bunch of them died trying to get in there. All we had to do is land at the beach that they weren't at and we could have waltzed right in. There's a lesson learned. But, you know, historical data implies that we should attack and you attack where the enemy is. Okay, and we accidentally attacked where the enemy was not and made more headway. So we learned a lesson there. But the Germans, knowing how predictable the United States Army is and how predictable the French are, meticulous they are, and, and the British knew that once we attacked at Normandy, it was a, it was a mirage. It was a, a diversion. It had to be because all the records they had indicated that, you know, Calais was going to be Patton and he was going to land there. So once they figured out that Normandy was the main attack, they started reacting. So now it goes to the unit level commanders, to the platoon leaders, to the captains of companies, uh, to armored units, infantry units, artillery units. So ground around combat, they've trained against American simulations knowing that, hey, here comes an American infantry platoon. Uh, you know, we know it's only 42 men, uh, two submachine guns and a mortar. We know how to defeat that because we've designed our platoon to stop that one. Okay. Well, the Americans, <laughs> we didn't necessarily follow our own rules. I, 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 well, I hate to say that. I, I really hate to say that we didn't follow our own rules, but that's, that's exactly what we did. We did not follow our own rules. So it started confusing the Germans. Now, let me give you the best example of how we didn't follow our own rules. The, you know, like a German rifle unit, had 59 men, 11 submachine guns, uh, six machine guns, and three horse-drawn vehicles. Think about that. An American uh, rifle unit uh, was not designed with horse-drawn individuals or, you know, things of that nature that would hamper you in, in combat or whatever the case may be. It was just the European way. So an American unit basically had... Uh, 36 men, six automatic rifles, four machine guns, and, and one mortar. And that's a platoon. You can see the difference there already. But, so they said, all right, we, we, we can go against those Americans. This is the way it's going to be. Now, the, historically, we look back on this, and once the units got to the beach, they were, we all know the story, 82nd Airborne scattered everywhere, 101st Airborne scattered everywhere, uh, armored units are scattered everywhere. People landed at the wrong beach. There's no unit integrity. Uh, commanders, you know, didn't didn't have their own units. They assembled units on the fly. That's my favorite. The infantry units got out there and he said, "All right, where's your commander? I don't know. Well, you're with me. Get over here. All right, Roger that, sir." And they'd form units to go after the Germans. So the unit strength for American units was based on what they could get their hands on. Now, I know this doesn't seem important right now, but you got to think this through for a second. The Americans are predictable. We read all of their manuals. We know that if we come across an infantry company, that's 100 men. Well, under normal circumstances, that was probably correct. 
But since we were so unorganized, and, and since we had officers that thought fast on their feet, we had infantry companies that had platoons of tanks attached to them. <laughs> You're sitting there going, well, wait a second. How does an infantry company have a platoon of tanks attached to it? Well, A, the platoon of tanks is separated from their unit. They have no idea where it is. They want to engage in the battle. They're supposed to support infantry. This captain walked over to the lieutenant. He goes, where's your unit? He goes, I don't know. He goes, fine, you're with us. Let's go. And then they go chase down Germans. So this German unit, they said, okay, here comes an infantry unit. We planned against that. All we got to do is assign two of our infantry units to take that one infantry unit out. So they assign two infantry units to go at it and discover, holy crap, there's a platoon of tanks there. We didn't plan on that. That's not in their manuals. They didn't follow their own rules. The biggest frustrating event for Rommel, and in fact, Yodel that, uh, that wrote about it as well, the biggest frustrating event was the Americans were unpredictable. They, you couldn't depend on them to follow their own rules. Most American units up until the end of the war were overstrength by 20 to 40 percent. Combat units, of course, went in overstrength and didn't come out overstrength, but you know, they, they went in at strength or greater. But none of the units were at strength. They always had mismatched units. You know, when you have an artillery section that, that's assigned to a battalion and, and then all of a sudden you discover, oh, there's three tank platoons assigned to that battalion as well and a couple of anti-tank guns and, and the Germans assign what they thought should take on that battalion and get over and discover that they got mixed units everywhere. They lose. When you think you know exactly what the enemy is going to do, you lose. You can't present yourself as being predictable because then they know how to plan against you. I know it sounds very simple and it's kind of detailed listening to this explanation for combat and things of that nature, but this applies to everything. If you are predictable and you maintain the same thing day after day after day, and in some cases this is a good thing, taxes are, should be very predictable. I mean, <laughs> things of that nature. Um, you know, making sure the car is running every day. Maintenance should be very predictable. You know, you know so many miles, you got to do this, so many miles, you got to do that. There are failures, and there's things outside the bell curve, but they are predictable. They're called life cycles. Okay? So you have this whole nomenclature out there that you know how some things are going to react. You know how some things are going to do under certain situations, and you can predict the outcome and prepare for it. Okay. So now we can get into politics. Now that that entire explanation is done. <laughs> if you are predictable in politics, do you think you're going to be effective? That is the question of the day. If you are predictable in politics, do you think you're going to be effective? I got some very sad news for you. If you are predictable in politics, and you are cornered into a situation to where you are very predictable, then you better have a heck of a good base because you're not going to last that long. Because all the enemy has to do is set you up for failure politically, watch you do what they exact expect you to do, and as you do exactly what they expect you to do, they set a trap for you and you fall right into it. 
So being unpredictable in an environment that requires you to have success and keep your enemies, you know, guessing what you're going to do next is uh, is probably a pretty good thing in politics. Now, it makes good press. They sell a lot of papers and, you know, TV and radio ads. That's always a good thing for the press because that's what they're designed to do. The press is designed to make money. They've got to make money. They've got to sell ads. That's what they do. They quit reporting a long time ago. Now everything's sensationalized. So you've got to do something that's unpredictable, that makes headlines, that keeps the press going, so you stay in the press all the time. And not only do you stay in the press all the time, it doesn't matter if it's good press or bad press as long as it's you. That way you suck all the air out of the room, nobody else has an opportunity to do anything, and nobody else can predict what you're going to do next. The other thing that Rommel talked about, and this is Field Marshal Rommel, uh, if you ever get the chance to read about him and his comments and the other things he said, one of the things he said, he, he said, we lost the war, not to the American soldier, not to his tanks, not to the planes. We lost the war to the deuce and a half, which is a great big truck. It's a two and a half ton truck that delivers supplies. The Germans did not have the logistical supply chain to maintain what they needed. They kind of lived off the land. Well, not literally, but they kind of lived off the land. They moved into a local economy. It was the local economy that provided for that army. Kind of the European way. Well, when the Americans came over there, they knew there was nothing left. So they had truck after truck after truck, and when we started advancing, we started making main supply routes. And the problem with our main supply routes is we didn't know where our armies were going. There was a while there that nobody knew where Patton was. They just knew he was in enemy territory, moving forward, and they couldn't keep up with him, and his supplies couldn't keep up with him. He had to send back units to find the supply line to take the supplies forward. They had outrun the supply lines. So he was so unpredictable, he was unpredictable to his own army. And the Germans had to react to that. (laughs) If anything, I hope you take away from this is the understanding that being unpredictable uh, engaged in politics or engaged with an enemy is, is important. And being predictable is not necessarily that important. Now, understand, I know I'm going to get comments on this. There's a difference between being predictable and being reliable. The results have to be reliable. Patton was unpredictable, but he was reliable. Knew where the enemy was, went and did what was necessary. Reliable. He was far from predictable. All right, we come back from the break. Uh, special segment. Now, I understand new format this year for the show. New format. Uh, we're going to start off the year with an hour-long format. We've got new interns for this year. So we've got to warm the interns up, get him used to doing things. Uh, we have quality, we have writing, we have on-air personalities. So it, in a little while, we'll get the roundtables warmed up, and we'll start having youth group roundtables between the universities, and we will pre- start presenting ideas. Now, just like last time, 
we had what 16 Republican candidates for president and you know four for Democrat we had an intern for each one and they followed them until they dropped out I hope to do the same thing this time so if you're out there and you want to be an intern to the show we are going to have an assignment for you now and you think oh my gosh which one am I gonna get we draw them out of a jar we draw the candidates out of a jar so you don't know if you're gonna get Democrat you don't know if you're gonna get Republican and you don't know which one you're gonna get but you have to do your due diligence as an individual to research that candidate and follow them through the election so you can talk about it during the roundtable. This is really important because it's going to serve two things. One, it's going to teach you to look at somebody else's point of view, not necessarily your own, and that will help you get out of the political bubble. And it's going to help you understand that not all good ideas come from one party. That kills me. <laughs> Believe it or not, ideas may come from somewhere else other than your own party. I, I, I don't know how these people get that polarized. All right, we'll come back from the break. Uh, we'll kick it off and see what goes down the road. I'm Abby. And I'm Allie. And we're the Rannick Twins. That's right, we said twins. Identical, to be exact. And, and this, this is Oops, I Arted. I'm Abby, and I am an art major. I'm a junior right now. I love learning about the wacky stories that come along with being an artist. I'm Allie. I'm a business major with a focus on communication. I love podcasts. This is an art podcast with a twist. We tell you the true stories of artists and how these stories influence their artwork. For us, an artist can mean a lot of different things, right, Abby? Absolutely. Art comes in many forms, like music, painting, poetry, sculpting, cooking. Those guys that uh, carve stuff with chainsaws. Yeah, those dudes are awesome. We should definitely do a podcast. Totally. That. If there's a good story to tell, we'll tell it. Exactly. This podcast isn't particularly about artwork. It's more about the weird things that happen in artists' lives. For example, today we're going to be talking about Greg Allman from the Allman Brothers, and more specifically, the foot shooting party. This is one of my favorite stories in musical history. I remember my dad telling us this story when we were very young. I thought it was a legend at first, and then I finally went to look it up and found out that Greg Allman did indeed shoot <laughs> himself in the foot. Yeah, you know, growing up in the South, a lot of people think this is probably folklore, <laughs> and I'm sure anyone who has listened to the Allman Brothers has heard of that one of the Allman Brothers shot himself in the foot. Personally, I think this story is the reason the Allman Brothers became as big as they did, because without this whole occurrence, Greg Allman could have been drafted. So I guess we should delve into the story before we give away too many details, shall we? Yes, I'm interested. Also, this information was not incredibly easy to come by, at least reliable sources. I found a lot of forums about people talking mm -hmm. about it when I was looking it a up. A lot of hearsay. I found that yeah. I kind of had to wing it. So luckily, I found some good articles. I got a lot of this information from Rolling Stones and a great article from The Garden and Gun called Greg Allman's Restless Soul. It's a good read. And then, you know, all the fact-based stuff. I found a good old Wikipedia. <laughs> My trusty pal. All reliable. <laughs> yes. All right. So, Gregory Lanour Allman. He was born December 8, 1947 in Nashville, Tennessee. Good old Nashville. His brother Dwayne was born November 20th, 1946, making him just a year older. Some close birthdays right there. Yeah, you know. So they lived in Nashville for a short period, him, his brother, their dad, Willis Allman, and their mother, Geraldine. And then they moved to Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, Willis was looking for work. And the night after Christmas, 
Willis went to a bar, their dad. So Willis and his friend met a guy at the bar. Okay. And they started talking, they hung out, had some drinks, you know. Yeah. I guess that's how it works at bars. Yeah. And they were dropping him off at home when he pulled out a gun and was like, pull over. This and is a stick up. And Willis, according to a couple of the articles I read, he tried to convince him not to, tried to talk him down. And the guy was like, you already know my name. So what? he shot him. Yeah. Oh, he knew too much. Yeah. So Dang. Willis was murdered the night after Christmas. That's horrible. And Greg and Dwayne were two and three years old at the time. Geraldine. Yeah, I know poor Geraldine. She's alone with two two boys. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> so after that, Geraldine moved them to Nashville, and she sent Dwayne and Greg to Castle Heights Military Academy, and Greg began studying to become a dentist. Okay, so I think that's a pretty honest profession. Yeah, that's a good thing to go into. People are always going to need their teeth fixed. Exactly. For as long as humans have teeth, (laughs) we will need them fixed. Yeah, exactly. You know, they were young teenagers at the time, and Greg had, like... I'm sure wild. Probably. uh, (laughs) Greg had a job, throwing papers, and he had finally scrounged up enough money from that job to buy himself a guitar. So... Greg started playing, but Dwayne, like, really picked up on the guitar. He just could play. Sibling rivalry. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. There's nothing wrong with a little friendly competition. No, I think it's healthy. It definitely helped these two out. Absolutely. So, they were doing little shows with, like, the local musicians and stuff like that. Support your local musicians. Always. <laughs> so, they formed a band called the Almond Joys. I love that name. Yeah, I just want to pause for a second to appreciate... Almond Joys. I think it's so clever. They took full advantage of that last name. Absolutely. <laughs> that is theirs to take. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the Almond Joys played local venues across the South. Yeah. They were growing a bit of a following, and Dwayne started kind of pressuring Greg, like, hey, drop out of school so we can start this band. Let's get this band going. That's a tough decision. I know. It's like a, a definitely a crossroads of a lifetime for sure. Like, do I quit school? I feel like you just think that like I was crazy. <laughs> You'd be like, no. What are you, crazy? <laughs> I can't do that. Maybe you should just do both for a little while. You know? <laughs> I'm in school. I'm starting a podcast. Well, you was doing both, right? <laughs> for a while, yeah. And then Dwayne was like, hey, man, drop out. Let's get this band it's going. To get like, we got to take off. And then, on top of all of this, Greg gets hit with a draft for the Vietnam War. Uh-oh. So his being a dentist is put on hold. Yeah. Even, even if he wanted to stay in school at this point, he couldn't. Yes, everything's on hold. It's yeah. like, you got to go to the war now. Yeah, like, we're going. We, we chose you. Exactly. I'm sure you're wondering, like, Dwayne is older. How did he not get a draft notice? And it's because Willis had been murdered while, while they were, like, Dwayne was three. But Greg was 18 and fit to serve. Find Send a- him off. <laughs> they had to find a way. They're shipping him off. Luckily, Dwayne had a plan. Oh, here we go. Yeah. I love that it was Dwayne's idea, too. This totally feels like something that you or I would come <laughs> up with. I'm sure he's been stewing on it for a while, you know? When the you draft- think of it, he might have come up with it as, like, a joke. You know, they're talking about ways to get out, and he's like, dude, you could just, like, shoot yourself in the foot, you know? <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, so that's exactly what he said. I've been thinking about how we can get you out of the draft, and my best option is that <laughs> you can shoot yourself in the foot. And I'm sure Greg was like, what? 
no way, I can't shoot myself in the foot. You can still play guitar. Exactly. You can still sing. You don't need your foot to do those things. Yeah, dude, you can sit down on stage, huh? <laughs> It's cool. Yes, but shooting himself in the foot would in turn make him unfit to serve. He really didn't have a whole lot of options at this point. <laughs> so they had a party, the infamous foot shooting party. I love the name. I know, right? Definitely piques your interest immediately. Uh-huh. Can you imagine seeing that in a flyer, like, posted around your a town? A newspaper ad. All right. The night before he was to report to the recruitment office, Dwayne invites all these girls over, and everyone's having a good time. Gotta have a bunch of girls, you know, get you in the mood. They're all getting drunk. Shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, I'm sure all these girls are like, ha you're gonna shoot yourself <laughs> in the foot, aren't you? Oh, my gosh. But I, I, hope not. I feel like the general... It was lighthearted. Yes. Yes, it was very... It's kind of a joke. Yeah, it was like, oh, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot later. And all the girls <laughs> were probably like, ha, 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 you're so funny, Greg. <laughs> and he had drawn, like, a target on his moccasin. But as the night grew later, this had become very real. I think the severity of the situation really started to set in with Greg. That anticipation is building up yes, throughout the night. it's becoming more intense. Yeah, you're like, well, there's not much time left. Yeah, Greg kind of started chickening out a little bit. So Dwayne, you know, started kind of, like, agging him on. Like, Me. oh, you got to do this. You know, we have to have the band. This would totally be us. So Dwayne talked him into it. Greg downs two shots of whiskey, makes a quick phone call. Heck yeah. And then he comes out with a Saturday night special handgun. A what? (laughs) I figured you were going to ask what a Saturday night special was. So I went ahead and looked it up. But it's a low caliber compact handgun. All right. So little pocket pistol. Yeah, I'm sure it takes many names. <laughs> but he walks outside with his handgun, and he did it. Shot himself in the foot. I can't believe that he shot himself in the foot. Like, yeah. I, I really feel like I would need you to shoot me in the foot. Or at least, <laughs> at least hold my hand. Because, you know, we do the one, two, you shoot on two instead of three, <laughs> and you told me you're going to shoot on three, that kind of thing. Yeah. Out of love, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, sirens are growing in the distance. He shot himself in the foot. And so he, yeah, he, he called the Yes, and I could not imagine the conversation that he had with the person on the other end of that line. I really just wish that we knew, at least along the lines of what he said. I can imagine all day long, but I really just wonder. Yeah, I'm sure it was a great night to be an operator. I read that when he goes to the ER, he still has the shoe on with the target painted on. Yes. I'm pretty sure he did (laughs) still have his shoe on. Unfortunately, both the articles I read didn't have a whole lot of information on the aftermath. I'd love to hear that story, too. That they get into the the ER and they're like, dude, the target's still painted on your shoe. We have to ditch the shoe, you know? But yeah, Greg Allman hobbled his way into the recruitment office the next day and got his medical exemption from the Vietnam draft. I just want to say, this plan worked. Also, fun fact, Greg Allman, according to him, painted the target strategically on his shoe so the bullets would shoot in between two bones. That way it would leave minimal damage to his foot. It wouldn't shatter a whole lot. Yeah. There are like 40 bones in your foot. Yeah. There's a lot going on in those babies. Yeah, definitely. So the band went on to be a huge success. They formed the Almond Brothers in 69. And two years later, they released Live at Fillmore East, which is a great album. Yeah, uh, it actually hit number 13 on the billboards. And then Dwayne died in a motorcycle accident October 29th of that year in Georgia. That's horrible that Dwayne, that happened to Dwayne, but I mean, Greg is, I think Dwayne's death 
would have probably been a little bit harder. Oh, yeah, because he knew him. Yeah, and they they were the Almond Brothers. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure Dwayne took the paternal role in the family. There's actually a quote from Greg Allman's memoir, My Cross to Bear, where he had said, what we had been trying to do for all these years finally happened, and he was gone. That's so sad. I know, it broke my heart. Dwayne's the reason he shot himself yes! <laughs> And he was trying to talk him out of going to dentistry school, and and it's so amazing to me that the, the Allman brothers were only around for oh, three years. I still listen to Live at the Fillmore East. It's so good. It's a great album. So Greg Allman died May 27th of last year in Richmond Hill. So he was like in Savannah and it was due to liver cancer and he was 69 years old. That is so sad. I mean, at least he was back in his home. Mm -hmm. And legendary. Well, well, yeah, that too. (laughs) Yeah. The Allman Brothers, I don't think the band would have been as big as they were if Greg Allman had been drafted. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's no telling how long he could have been drafted for. Or if he would have even survived. Yeah. And what if Dwayne passed away while he was at war, too? You have to think about that because that would have been maybe even more devastating because he wouldn't have seen him for such a long time. I agree. But yeah, that's the foot shooting party. What do you think? You think? The, the story is even better now that I know Did a we lot the more straight? details about it. <laughs> yeah, I've I read a lot of stuff, but I think that we covered it pretty well from start to finish. I agree. Next week, we will have a new story about a new artist going to be a, a theory series. Oh, yeah. We're going to change it up. The Eeries. <laughs> that's a nice teaser. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you for listening to the Hayden Collins Radio Program and the Intelligence Syndicate. And for those of you that followed the show throughout the years, know that I close the ending of the show with Be About It.